Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live.
write those down or have you thinking about those as you want to listen and refresh yourself when you write those teachings uh, from the podcast or from the website. Um, but that's what that's what we'll do. If you're a real church, what we'd have people do is we'd have them tweet in questions and we just live tweet the whole event. Like we're just not that fast. Well, well, you know, we I've preached enough sermons against social media that I think we've given up on that. Um, so <clears throat> tonight we're going to be looking at the topic of being filled in the spirit. Are we filled yet? Tonight we're going to talk about speaking in tongues, but actually the point of our study tonight is to discuss being filled with the spirit or maybe better said filled with the spirit. Um, and really looking at what does this mean? I was raised in the Blue Drop Church um, that I'm very, very thankful for. Um, I think, to be honest, at least to my knowledge, my recollection, um, I've never been a part of a church that wasn't charismatic, charismatic, um, believing in the gifts of the Spirit, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. I, I can't tell you how um, how many times I've thanked, been thanked for that, for the background that I have, um, the values of Scripture that I grew up with, the... Um, ability to allow the spirit to move that we had and um, and that background. Now, we build upon that, but there is an honoring that we have to do. That's just what we have to do, and I, I'm very grateful. And I hope that you're grateful for the contribution, whatever that might have been. If it wasn't the same thing, it wasn't really any different. But either way, if you're if you feel like you're where he wants you, you have to be grateful for that. Assembly of God Church that taught us that being filled with the Spirit was synonymous with having the evidence of speaking in tongues. In fact, we said that this was the initial evidence of being filled with the Spirit. So we actually said that being filled with the Spirit, the initial evidence of that occurrence, of that being saved, was speaking in tongues. Then other times we described it as being filled with the evidence. So it's like there was different vernacular. So we would say, are, are you filled with the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues? But then we would say the initial evidence of being filled with the Spirit was speaking in tongues, as if there could be other evidences that happened after it. But the, the first one, to really let people know, is do you shamanama? And then after that, other things can happen too. Um, and those were phrases that were very commonly used. But they all mean very different things. So in order to start, let's look at the beginning of what we know as our charismatic life. What you'll see in my, if I point to any other slides that's back there, but I want to just quickly show, this is for my children. These are big down ones on the side. But it says something about charismatic. Okay, yeah, here we go. In case you're wondering, so this is a real, this is a real uh, book from a real book that they would give visitors in the 70s at charismatic churches. And I don't know, apparently they couldn't commission an artist, but, but the stick figure, so if you can't see it at the top left, it says, if you see this, a stick figure walking up and putting his stick hand on top of the head of another stick figure and one of them falling down. And then it says beneath it, being slain, and then in, in, it's 
been, quote, slain in the spirit. The next one, if you see this, and people with their hands up, and, and it says these are lifting holy hands. If you see this, and, and it's, it's somebody, and I'm assuming that the little black thing is a jar of oil, because beneath it, it says laying on hands and ointing with oil. If you see or hear this, and you can't read it, but what it actually says is, hey, la, 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 hey, sa, na, 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 da, 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 da. Uh, and I, I don't know what that is, but that is uh, uh, speaking in tongues. If you see or hear this, and it's hallelujah, hallelujah, we love you, Lord, singing in the spirit. And if you see or hear this, uh, and you can't read it, but it says something, it actually says, somebody's here with a sore left knee, is what it actually says. And it says beneath that, word of knowledge. And then finally, if you see or hear this, my people repent, or thus says the Lord, my people repent and come to me and be filled with my love. Thus says the Lord, below that it says interpretation of tongues. So it's clarifying, and when all of these happen, but it's interesting. They would give these to visitors when they came into a Pentecostal church in the 70s. So this was something that a real Pentecostal, and it's, I love this aside, in case you were wondering. So it's just this, this is going to clear it all up right here. Just a one-stop shop in case you want to know what's happening uh, when a stick figure falls down. It's slain in the spirit. So thank you for bringing that clear back to everybody. But that's, that's, that's really um, pretty darn close. We kind of had it back cut and dry. Um, and I think that it would be wise of us to start from the beginning. In the early, early 20th century, excuse me, we find the beginning stages of what we now call Pentecostalism and later the charismatic movement. Preachers Charles Kahn and William Seymour are credited as the co-founders of this movement. Kahn and Seymour taught that baptism of the Holy Spirit was not the blessing of sanctification, but rather a third work of grace that is accomplished by the experience of tongues. So they actually taught that there were three works of grace. These were the first guys to teach it. The first work of grace was getting saved. The second work of grace was um, the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit coming into you. The third work of grace was the evidence of that Holy Spirit internal work, which was the seven tongues. Now, there's variations of that. I did some research, and you can, if you want to dive into it, it's not the point of the study. Some people would argue that the second work of grace is baptism. Um, so, I, I, but but then you get into really quickly in the early early 20th century, you also got into groups that believed you had to be baptized in order to be saved. So then there became it kind of gets muddy pretty quickly whether the first work of grace includes salvation in baptism, and then the second work of grace is when you speak in tongues, or if it's salvation, baptism, tongues, or if it's salvation filled with the Spirit, tongues. But that's these guys were the first were uh, first people to really introduce a an additional work of grace called speaking in tongues. Twenty years later, now I know we don't have any math wizards in the room, and I'm certainly not. But that's just at least a couple years after Pentecost, right? So just keep that in mind. It was Kahn who formulated the doctrine of initial evidence. 
after studying the Bible, he came to the conclusion that speaking in tongues was the biblical evidence that one had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in 1900, in the year 1900, he opened the Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas, where he taught this initial evidence. Interestingly enough, he had never spoken in tongues. And according to records, it was two to three years of him teaching this in this college before the first person spoke in tongues. So somehow he comes up with this idea from the Bible that you should do this. It's several years of teaching this before somebody actually experiences this work. So in 1905, he moved to Houston, where I took a Bible school there. One of his students was William Seymour. And in 1906, Seymour traveled to Los Angeles, where his teaching had had its what we now know as the Atlantic State Revival. Interestingly enough, he hadn't been filled with the Holy Ghost. Or he hadn't spoken tongues in that being filled with the Holy Ghost was the evidence that he had been taught in school. So now we're six to seven years after this exact point that he made. There are varying degrees of application. There are varying degrees of application. At, uh, at the onset of this process, you had to be filled with the Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues to go to heaven. So it was actually synonymous with salvation. It was the evidence of a salvation work, which was very commonly taught. This, uh, the reason this doctrine took hold was the language used. Because if you believed, excuse me, if, if you believed, if you didn't speak in tongues, then you weren't full of the Holy Spirit. That's why we reference being filled with the Spirit as the tongues experience. So point being, it, it became problematic for ourselves because what we actually said was, okay, you have to speak in tongues as an evidence that you're full of the Holy Spirit. We also knew that Paul said later in the scriptures that as soon as you get saved, you become one with the Spirit. So sometimes our doctrines become monsters that turn on us because our doctrine was if you're filled with the Spirit, the evidence of being filled with that Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has to be that you speak in tongues. The problem becomes then later, the same guy that talked about praying in the Spirit more than any other also said that we're all one in the Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says we're one in the Spirit. We're all one of the Spirit of Christ when you become saved, that you're filled with the Spirit at that point. So what they assumed was, let's walk it back. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. And, and I know that it's a rarity, but there are still churches that meet at Westside. In fact, it's not uncommon. I, I was reading a, a, a story the other day about um, a pastor that grew up in, in a church like that, uh, Pentecostal Holiness Church. Maybe some of you have heard of Pentecostal Holiness. Um, uh, women don't cut their hair. Um, they like to wear long dresses. Um, the men aren't allowed to um, have any facial hair or have long hair. Um, no uh, jewelry of any kind or jewelry. Can't be the one word. Jewelry or jewelry. Um, and you, um, but they have very, st- uh, you can't play any sports. Um, there's very strict, um, uh, no TV, um, or TV. I, I don't know if they have TV for dogs, but um, probably no. Um, but um, just guessing. Uh, but the um, but they this this pastor was giving an example of growing up in a church. He said that um, every Sunday for 30 years, a 
But then the doctrine's clarification is, ah, yes, but do you have the evidence to speak in other tongues? It became a litmus test for undercover Baptists and Methodists who might sneak into our congregations. It's like asking somebody, are you married? Yes, but do you love her? It's like this clarifying statement that really makes sure that you are who you're saying you are. So that's what we did. For many, this clarification of, yes, I have the evidence to speak in other tongues, became bad fodder. I don't need to reference the times we have discussed the clear instances where we create scenarios in which we're the minority or the victim in order to galvanize our cause. So what we do is we become bound together by some galvanizing sense that we're the few, the proud, and the brave. And so we bind together and say, we're the only ones. And, and yes, there's all kinds of other people. And the thought is, yeah, you know, um, the, uh, us Pentecostals, we're, we're saved, we're sanctified, and so we've got the threefold work of grace happening. Now, there's literally no way with that being the sense of what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit or full with the, of the Spirit or filled with the Spirit, all the same language, that you can do that and in Pentecostal-only churches not create a sense of first and second class citizenship. There's no way you can do that and that be the framework of your operation and not create a sense that this group is here and this group is here, maybe even, yeah, just a little bit lower. And so what you find is we would say things that would clarify and we would say things like, well, are you filled, brother? Have you spoken in tongues? And then this became a badge of honor for us. And we felt like that there were people who weren't speaking in tongues that would go to heaven because God was going to let them in, but kind of begrudgingly. God was going to let them in because they were saved. They loved God, but they weren't filled. So it becomes very quickly the exact antithesis of what Jesus said is supposed to be. Which is amazing. It's amazing to me how many times when we look at the actual, which we'll look at this at the end in Galatians, the actual fruit of the Spirit, or what it means is, this is what it looks like when the Spirit spills out of you. Those things cannot look like that. Yet for many of us, in our own way, shape, and form, it became a badge of honor. And one of the things I was thinking about tonight as I was studying is how easy it becomes for us and this is not a this is not a church thing. This is not a Christian thing. This is just a human nature thing. But how quickly it becomes for us that the people who have more, rather than recognizing that I have more for the benefit of giving to those who have less, empowering the less, we begin to say I have more, and that becomes exclusive to say I have and I'm right and those who have less are wrong. Let me give an example. 
So whether it would be in church, it became very, and, and it, it's like the idea that when the forefathers established this country, the reason they wanted regular citizens to be elected to our political roles is because they wanted somebody who was part of the people to put laws in place that would benefit those who couldn't get there on their own. So the laws that they put in place were supposed to be for the benefit of the few, the benefit of those that were not, as the technology we would use today, not the ones that were supposed to be there. And, and so if the way tax laws were supposed to be set up was not to benefit the 1%, it was to benefit the people who are on the lowest end of the spectrum, although we now do the opposite direction. Because the problem is the people who establish the tax, law, tax laws are the people who have the money, so they're going to establish tax laws that benefit them. Well, guess what? We did the same thing in church. So we start structuring our doctrine. The more truth we felt like we had, the more exclusive our group became that if you don't have that truth, you're not part of our group and you're either not as saved, not as sanctified, not as close to God, and potentially not even going to heaven rather than recognizing that I have a responsibility if I am full of the Spirit in a way that maybe some another brother or sister isn't, and I do feel like I have more than them. My job is to have more so I can give to those who have less, not so I can lord over them that they're not part of the group of having more. We do realize that in Genesis 12, the very first time that God decided to work with a human post-flood was Abraham in the, in, the, in, the, in the covenant. And what he said is, I want to make my covenant for you, with you. And I want to make my covenant with you and bless you and give you incredible things. But he says that with a comma, not a period. Because the next statement is, I want to bless you so that through you, the entire world will be blessed. Everything that God does for the chosen is for the unchosen. Everything that God does for the Christian is to designed to work to be to the benefit of the atheist. That's what, so God said, I'm choosing you, Abraham. I want to partner with you and bless you. But let me clarify what my blessing is supposed to do. My blessing is not to stop with you. You're supposed to be the springboard where through you, you're the touch point that I can bless everybody, all the nations of the earth. So what should be happening is that if we do feel like we have more than, let's say, our our Methodist brothers and sisters in Christianity, which actually is interesting, the Methodists don't live in Kansas. But, but let's pick somebody that you don't feel like is as charismatic. And part of what we're supposed to be doing is, is not supposed to be saying there's a line that separates the Antichrist from someone that goes into the cafe. It's supposed to be an, an, a, a, an honoring that says, even if that is the case, I reach and I extend it to entire nations. And so while I do believe clearly, and I'm just speaking in tongues for all the people here, and I am speaking as if the Lord never goes out of church, we do have that. that but I, I, I wrestle with the idea of, is that who we are? So let's start with the initial filling of the Spirit. Or rather, when the early church received the Spirit for the first time, and every good Pentecostal boy or girl would go to Acts chapter 2, right? 
Remember that back to that verse. John chapter 20 is the first time that the disciples receive the Holy Spirit. That evening, the disciples gathered together, and because they were afraid, this is post-crucifixion of the Jewish leaders, they had locked the doors to the place where they met, but suddenly Jesus appeared. He walked through the wall and said, Peace be to you. Then he showed them the wounds on his hands, and they were overjoyed to see the Lord with their own eyes. Jesus said again, Peace to you. And he said, Just as my Father sent me, now I'm sending you. Then taking a deep breath, he blew upon them and said, This is my Holy Spirit. of us would have assumed the first passage would be the day of Pentecost. If you really want to go further, David actually uh, uh, recognizes and references the Holy Spirit when he says, Lord, take not your presence from me and let not your Holy Spirit be far away from me. So David actually uh, references the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Um, I do recognize the second half of the birth of the church. I recognize that there was Jesus in John 10 and and in in, uh, I believe in John 5 as well reference that there was going to be another work that would happen, a Holy Spirit, a comforter that was going to come when he would leave. So Acts chapter 2 gives us that passage. When the day of Pentecost came, they all were together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So if you want to be literalist that we are Pentecostals, um, my first question would be, where's the fire that's sitting on your head? So if, if, you, I mean, if you feel like the tongue talking is what gives us the ownership, so I, I feel like that to some degree Pentecostals go, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, little has the little circle with the key in it, trademark, I speak in tongues. But if you're a literalist in that way, you're missing some elements. The second thing that you find is that when Peter clarifies this in Acts 2.38, Peter replies and says, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the clarification that he gives doesn't reference. In fact, even Peter's example when he talks about Joel 2, he, the, the clarification that he gives about what the day of Pentecost is for, the birthday of the church, he never mentions the same passage. He says, what the Holy Spirit, I just want to be clear here, in a community sense, in a community sense, what the Holy Spirit does, I'm not saying the, 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 the individual fruits, I'm saying in a broad sense, the Holy Spirit levels the playing field. That's what that means. Why? Because what Peter says is, look around the room. You've got servants, and you've got masters, you've got, you've got um, maybe not senators, but certainly people of an aristocrat or a higher level being. You've got kings. You've got all kinds of different people. You've got American people. You've got um, you've got uh, Gentile people and so on. And what he said is, when the Holy Spirit comes, the old men and the young men, the 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 women and the benefit men, the maid servants, servants are all going to give an equal. 
the thing that fucked everybody up wasn't that they were seeking each other's anguish. The thing that made the Jews so mad is that Peter said, when the Holy Spirit comes in the room, everybody becomes mad. Because they lived in a society that was saying these people were servants and these people were sinners. These people were aristocrats and these people were beggars. And he said, in the kingdom, when the kingdom comes in the room by the Holy Spirit, everybody wants you to become like me. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing we have to see is that. The second thing we find is in, in Acts chapter 6, when they decide that they want to bring others in, uh, obviously the, uh, you know the, the background of this maybe, but Acts chapter 6 is when they decide that the, the, the few, the pastors, are not able to meet the needs of everybody. And so they decide that they want to bring in what later uh, some uh, translations call deacons, that they become like leaders in the lay leaders in the church to help. And it says in those days, verse uh, 1 of Acts chapter 6, the number of disciples was increasing. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the other, the Hebraic Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered together all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God and overlook our service. Brothers and sisters, uh, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And we'll turn to them the responsibility and give the attention to prayer and ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, so they chose Stephen, who was a handful of those men of the Holy Spirit. Never mentions speaking in tongues. In the most general sense, they literally just said, pick people who you know are just full of the Spirit. That's just like Stephen. This was the clarification. This was the classification. I'm not saying that Stephen didn't speak in tongues. I, I very likely, but you don't see them lining people up and saying, okay, how many languages have you got? You don't see them lining them up saying, okay, can you, I, uh, you know, we're going to do a, a big diverse tongues activation to determine if you're worthy to be in this role or not. They, you don't see that. I'm not saying they didn't work in that way. I'm not saying they didn't speak in tongues. Very likely they did. But I do find it interesting that they, in the most general sense, they literally just said, find people who are full of the Spirit. Those are the ones that are speaking. When you look at the Bible, the challenge we find when making statements or quoting the evidence of the infilling of the Spirit with speaking in tongues is we're using a bad exegesis. There's two ways to read the Bible, and they call that a hermeneutic lens. So what that means is it's the, it's the lens wherewith you translate the Bible. There's two versions of that. One is called an eisegesis. One's called an exegesis. And it's not G-A-E-S-U-S. Amen. It's G-E-S-I-S. So exegesis, eisegesis. Exegesis means to take something outside and look in. So God does something and you begin to look inside of the scripture to find that worked out. Eisegesis is where you begin to pull out of the word things, okay? And God does both. Neither are wrong. Both of them can happen. Um, I think that oftentimes we do find that our own perspective will dictate how we read the word, but that's a whole other conversation. We'll talk a little bit about that on Sunday. So this is a bad exegesis because what actually happens is when we look at the Bible in the book of Acts, you have to first remember that Acts is an incredibly helpful book for us to see what the early church looks like. 
it is a historical book and not simply a book of instruction. Acts is a history book. What that means is that Luke, the writer, is telling us what happened, not all that's allowed to happen. Luke, at no point in the book of Acts, indicates that the examples in Acts should be your only measuring stick for us. They certainly can be very useful examples to encourage us, but it becomes more about the spirit of the early church than it does the perfect measurement of fulfilling it has to work like this. So what happened was when these initial guys in the 20th century started looking at the Bible, they pulled out one example in the book of Acts. They maybe pulled out one example in the book of uh, in Acts 2 and again in Acts 4 and said what happened is when they became full of the spirit, they did what? Spoke in tongues. They ignored all the other instances because there's six total in the book of Acts where it talks about what happens or the definition of the response of somebody being filled with the spirit. They ignored all the other six and said, it's this. And then they began to say, for the rest of time, the way it has to work is when somebody gets full, the definition, the proof, the evidence is that they have to speak in tongues, otherwise the spirit not filled with the spirit. The book of Acts was never intended to be that. It's not, I'm not saying you can't gain instruction from it, but it's not one of Paul's letters to the church in how you should operate in church. So it would literally be like somebody showing up at one of our church services and say, the way you have to worship is Joel has to make some, somebody has to make noise on a guitar over here while somebody um, tries to sing and another person beats on a drum. And then nobody can stay in their pew. Everybody has to go to the aisles and stand on the walls and be looking at the walls. Now see where that can happen. You see where if somebody used our church as the example, rather than a point of instruction where you gain the spirit of what should happen, if you gain the exact replica or template of how it has to be done, you could be here a century later still saying, well, have you spoken tongues? Rather than the filling of the Spirit, and oh, by the way, I, it break, it, for years it has broken my heart to think that I have to look at somebody, maybe not verbalize this, but say to somebody who is either, I remember when I, I grew up in this, I remember it's my job as a pastor to say, I, there were some Sundays I would stay at an altar for two hours with somebody, laboring and praying that they would receive. And then you get all this wacky stuff where you, where you start making stuff happen. Okay, loosen up your jaw. And then, and then you tell them to say something real fast. Say Jesus. Now say it faster. All right, Jesus, I do. And you're moving their jaw. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Oh, you got it, brother. I'm just ready to go eat. I don't really know if you have it or not, but I'm starving. And that's what we do. And so we tell people, and we do that. Why? Because it's breaking my heart that this person is, I'm telling them that God gives them a gift. But I'm also telling them that God is withholding this gift that is an indicator as of if they have his spirit or not. Does that make sense? Jesus looked at them in the room and breathed peace 
It's literally what he said. Peace. I've never felt anything in church more opposite of peace than those elders that were here today. They were praying. They were joyful. And not because I was showing anybody, but they felt something. Not because I was telling anybody that God would love them as much, but they certainly were questioning a lot of stuff at that moment because they they knew the ramifications because they had just heard that that meant you weren't filled. That that means you didn't have the Holy Spirit. And yet later in the scripture, it says that you, you either have it or you don't. So it's not like he gives a little bit. So it creates all this stuff. It creates a begging theology. whether they should beg with laughter was, is, are you a good father that when your child asks for bread, you give them a stone? How much better is your father? So why did you come to see me today? So when we look at the book of Acts, we use this as the measuring stick of how it has to work. This can be helpful, but it becomes more about, or the intent is more about the spirit of it than it is the exact formula. And if we decide, I, I, I'm, I'm learning more and more how how much we turn to blind eye to things. I'm learning much more about how unequal we look at Scripture. Because in the same book of Acts 4 where we drew the doctrine that if you are full of the Holy Spirit and thusly saved, full of the Spirit, spoke in tongues, that would be evidence. In Acts chapter 4 is where you also find that they had to sell everything they had or you could own no property or no goods. So, do we live in communes? I'm telling you, if this is the formula, if this is the template of how it has to be, please tell me how to read it. Because you can't pick this verse to say it has to be this formula and then pick this verse to say, no, but I like my food the way it is. things you find in Acts as evidences of being filled with the Spirit. But the first, the first thing I think we need to get away from is the word evidence. I have no idea why we decided that we should go all TSI on being filling of the Spirit. It very quickly became a crime scene investigation where we're examining for evidence like Gil Grissom, and we're trying to figure out, and you in the background, you hear the law and order, dum, bum, 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 you know, the theme song kicks in, and we're standing there at the altar, and we're saying, are they speaking in tongues, or do they have the evidence? So the first problem we have is, just like Glenn Grissom, you like that? It just kind of, look at this and we say, well, this has to be the evidence. I think that more so you find the initial demonstration of being filled in the scriptures as multiple things and the fruit of that is multiple things. So in the book of Acts alone, you find the demonstrations of being filled with the spirit or the fruit of being filled with the spirit as having full joy, 
having their heart speech, which, you know what? I think that's probably the first thing. Your heart. Because I don't see how you could be full of his spirit and it not change your heart. And that's, if we want to use the word evidence, to me that's kind of the evidence for the pudding. If you're full of the spirit of God, how could that be and your heart not change? And then you also see that when you were taught, you were told in Leviticus, it's all about says, be very careful then how you live, but not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, singing with music from the heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the, there are two things that I really want to bring to bear in this. Number one is, see, it, it's, I've always found it fascinating, maybe you didn't, Pastor Greg probably uh, uh, has thought about this before when he was up here. Why in the world is it that he's in the midst of talking about finding the will of the Lord and being filled with the Spirit, but right in the midst of it he says, don't get schnockered. Isn't that weird? I'm just being honest. Like, right in the middle of saying, find God's will, with his, his spirit and make sure to use a breathalyzer. Seriously? Like, what? why is that there? I, it's always bothered me. And if I can be really honest, I, I do believe that scripturally you find the theme, overarching theme of the scripture or a thread, it's probably a better way to say it, throughout the scripture that you shouldn't be drunk. Drunkenness as a way of life is not helpful. But if you think for a moment that this is about a .08 on the spiritual breathalyzer scale. That that, I was, I was good with God until that second half of that Michelob Ultra. And now all of a sudden, I've fallen into sin. Does that really, do we really think it works that way? That God's sitting up there in heaven and all of a sudden, well, you know, until they, until they crack that second glass of wine, I, they were holy. But now they slipped over here and sinned. That makes no sense. So he's actually not saying don't be drunk. Because I'm just going to be honest. If you have drank, it is very likely that at some point you have probably drank more than you thought you drank. I mean very innocently. I'm talking like someone. Tosh says no. She's saying it's never happened in her entire life. Uh, I, I guess what I'm saying. If you've ever, I'm saying in innocence, and please, no, don't come with your innocence. I'm, what I'm talking about is instances where maybe you have a glass of wine and then a second glass of wine, and, and um, you've eaten, and you go, oh, man, I need to slow down here, something like that. I'm talking in awareness. I'm not talking about where you've, you've uh, done your um, 16th buttery nipple and crawl off the bar stool, Okay. Okay, I'm not 
talking about that. I'm really not. That's not, I'm not talking about where you have clearly exercised excess. But I do think I always would look at this and go, how does he know? Like, at, at that point. So why does Paul include this? Because he's talking about a real life. And I think he's also mentioning something that needs to be really clear. Have you ever been around somebody that's hammered and not known it? They're sober. They're whammied. And you go, oh, they seem fine to me. Usually, usually, they're on Xanax. Now, I we play music from time to time on Sunday and Monday. And every once in a while during those occasions, um, we've seen people who have um, imbibed um, and maybe have been, uh, as the, the, the professional term is, maybe been slightly overserved. I love that, that we say overserved in our culture because that, that takes the onus of responsibility off of the person who's doing the drinking and puts it on the person who's doing the serving. But whatever. Uh, and I've never, ever, whether I know them or not, been like, yeah, I really don't know. I didn't notice that. There are self-help models, right? And if you've ever been around somebody who you know fairly well, have you ever been around somebody? Have you ever had somebody? I, yeah, I don't know. We have somebody that Tosh and I know that will not speak to me, hasn't spoke to me in a couple years, okay? Um, that's like me. I don't know why. I wave every single time, and they don't. Um, one time I thought they waved, but I think they were offended. Um, and so they just really don't like me. But we were playing somewhere, and they had already been there, and I potentially imbibed it, and I don't think they were drinking water. And when we walked in, she came up and gave us a hug. That was a pretty telltale sign that something's going on. Like, you just flipped me off yesterday, and you just hugged me, and you haven't spoken to me in five years. Something's different, right? There are telltale signs. So what Paul is saying to me, the reason he throws, don't be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit, two things. Number one is because if you are filled with the Spirit, there's going to be change. People around you are going to know that you're not drinking. And unless you think that the way they're going to know that you're not filled is that you walked around saying, who untied my bow tie, who stole my Honda? Run to me, Kiki, run to me, Kiki. That's another one that I heard growing up. Or, unless you think that's the sign that people are going to know, there's got to be another way that they know you're filled. That's why Paul mentions don't be drunk. The other thing is, um, <clears throat> because you can't get drunk and stay drunk without continuing to If you can, I don't. I didn't realize this till just now. If if five beers get you there and then you stay there forever, you know, Anheuser Busch is in trouble. Um, and but you don't stay there. the The reason he mentions that is because in the walk of the Spirit, it's the same way. When you look at this Ephesians chapter five, when it says instead be filled. It's originally classic Bible English of instead be filled and keep being filled. So it's be being filled. So back to the Greek language. Be being filled. You get filled and 
it to God. Just like how the Father can give me ears and the Son can can maintain that in the same way can our spirit be maintained so that we can worship him. So, what do I think it means to be filled or full of the Spirit? I agree with Paul. Looks like Jesus. We find the evidence of this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against which the law has no control. Those who belong to Jesus Christ are crucified with Christ. They've been cast out of their lives. We live by the Spirit. Let us not continue in deceptive spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking and envying one another. Notice Paul shows up, and I think Paul here would understand what he means, that there'd be a group of people who would start speaking in tongues and think that we have something that is good enough for us to start speaking in tongues. So he shows a warning that when you get to that point, don't be get to something that's very upset and wrong, it's your job to help them get better than they are, not your job to say that you're in a group that they don't belong to. You hit the lottery, it's not your job to make sure no poor people sneak out of the room. It's your job to make sure that everybody in the room is better than you. That's the and best way we can tell if we're filled with the Spirit is we continually are being filled by who He is. Within this, we surrender more and more to Him. And as we surrender more and more to Him, it's more and more likely that we'll be filled up by the Spirit and lifted to Jesus. If the Holy Spirit had a face, this is the face of Jesus. Play with that for a second. If the Holy Spirit had a face, so if you want to know if you're full of the Holy Spirit, the simple question is, do I have a face? My first question to myself when I'm asking if I'm full of the Spirit is, am I living the Sermon on the Mount to the best of my ability? Am I living what Jesus said? Am I living the Jesus Sermon? That probably means I'm full of the Spirit. I would have to think, that if you're doing that, there's a great likelihood that you're full of the Spirit, whether or not you've ever said it out loud. And so, I would encourage, I do believe, absolutely and wholeheartedly, I'm not speaking in tongues. I've been speaking in tongues since I was six years old. I was baptized in the Spirit in my bed at six. And I've been doing it ever since. And I think there are times, we could spend hours on the phone having studies about how incredible it is, how it, it defies biology, it defies biophysics, it defies science in so many ways. And I believe it's an incredible gift. But I do also think that we cannot miss the fact that when Paul, the one who talked about praying in tongues and, and how important, he has an example to say, this is what the fruit, or if you want to use the word evidence, of being full of the Spirit looks like. He says, grace, joy, peace,
you manipulate, I don't know about people who are anemic, I don't know about people who are skinny, I don't know about people who are fat, but that I would rather be a church who has a body that is gifted to care for the whole realm Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.